Holly Atkin published her first full-length poetry collection, Basic Nest Architecture, in 2017. Like her two pamphlets before it, Bone Song and Shadow Dispatches, Basic Nest Architecture won widespread critical acclaim, including New Writing North's Andrew Waterhouse Prize. Susanna V. Evans chatted with Polly about the roots of her poetic life in places like Cumbria, where she now lives, as well as within the Stanza Poetry Festival at St Andrews, where this interview was recorded. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. So I wanted to start actually by, by thinking about your collection. Basic Nest architecture seems to me to be to do with the idea of home, mm. making a home, having a home. And I was just sort of kind of thinking about this, this idea of architecture and construction and scaffolding. And I was wondering if you had a sense of building your poems when you write them? Yes, to some extent. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of how we live in the world uh, full stop, I suppose. And part of that is, is how we live with language. Yeah. Um, so one of the ways in which people traditionally say that humans are separated from animals is that we have language and they don't, which is increasingly being debunked. Mm, um, yes. And I have lots of arguments, like, I've had lots of arguments <laughs> with, with linguists uh, about it, <clears throat> um, because I've always thought it's a slightly silly thing to say, um, yeah. that other things have language we just don't understand. Um, but I do think there is something constructive a, a, about composing a, a poem in that way, that you are putting something together mm, yeah. um, in, in a particular order, yeah. um, you're building something up, there's a sense that um, you start from an idea or a word or a phrase and that's your kind of foundation and then you're, yeah. you're trying to construct something. But maybe it's something more like a, a bower bird. Um, yes, building something yes. than than building a house. <coughs> yeah, yeah, it's a different yeah. kind of construction. Well, I was I was just actually the thing that made me think that was the jackdaw poem, which to me seems almost to be built out of things like italics. Yeah, and the sounds and they're kind of these different elements, almost like twigs. And, 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 and yeah, of... yeah, it is. It's very gathered actually. Yeah. So so there is. It, I mean, that that's a research poem in, in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of bits of information from other places, mm-hmm. um, which I have kind of magpie together yeah, really yeah, yeah. kind of grass that, that's interesting like, so in a poem about a bird yeah doing a jackdaw in a jackdaw <laughs> poem I, I hadn't really thought about it but that's exactly yeah how it was made yeah, yeah. um and in terms of your writing routine could you tell me a bit about that gosh well I don't really have a routine if you have a routine that, 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 that's that's part of it um I'm very much the kind of person who will write when I want to write something Mm. most of the time. So I don't in any way do a kind of morning pages type routine or anything like that. That to me is just not helpful. Mm. I used to keep a journal years ago um, and I did find that helpful because I would write down um, not just things that were happening to me but thoughts about them and um, I'd write down my dreams as as well Mm. which are quite important. they end up being important in my poems because I have very vivid dreams and they take yeah. over my life a, a lot. So like the foxes one. Yeah, although they're not my dreams, they're, yeah, they're other people's they're dreams. So I'm, I'm interested in, in that effect on other people too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I used to kind of uh, write down more in prose and draw from that to some extent as well. But I, I don't even do that 
anymore very mm-hmm. much. Occasionally, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll use, I use a notebook for everything mm-hmm. when I have a current notebook. So I'll write bits of poems in it. I'll write lists in it. I'll write appointments and notes to myself and yeah. um, research notes and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, so really, writing a poem for me is about having an idea or you know, when a phrase pops into your head or something, mm, mm, um, yeah. and then fiddling with it. And sometimes I do it straight away. Sometimes I write down a tiny bit and then come yeah. back to it months or years later <laughs> um, when I have time. So <coughs> I, I'm a very routine-less writer. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't have a desk either, so... Mm. Um, or I do have a desk, but I don't use it for a writing act. What do you so, use it for? Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> most of the time it's got, it's got stuff on it. It's a bureau, so... Yeah. Um, it's got stuff in it um, and very occasionally I will sit at it if I have a particular kind of writing to do um, and I do write at the, the table in the lounge sometimes mm-hmm. but for me both the kind of structures of a routine where you would have to write at certain times which some people find really helpful yeah. um, and the idea of writing in certain places yeah. um, are for me the exact opposite of that like the constrictions which are not happy constraints mm. um they're bad constraints there's um this thing with that we used to say about wordsworth at the wordsworth trust when we were giving tours where we said he didn't write at a desk because it reminded him of school mm. um, and i think there is part of that that I, yeah. I don't like to be told when i should be doing something yeah i want to just be able to do it when it feels right so do poems ever come at odd moments? You know, oh, are you ever in, in the bath? Yeah, totally. Well, we, we all know all of your best thoughts come when you're in the bath yeah. um, or swimming. Yeah. Uh, you know, swimming <laughs> is, is the worst one. Or going for a walk and then you have to try and remember yes, things. Yeah. Um, and very occasionally, again, I, I use voice memo on my phone sometimes yeah. now yeah. Um, rather than trying to scribble something down. But quite often I just try and remember it as well. Yeah, and then yeah. what I've remembered ends up being the important bit. And in, in some of the interviews that I've done as part of Stanza, one of the things I've been asking people a lot about is sound and listening in poetry. And I just wanted mm-hmm. to ask how much of poetry writing for you is about listening and how much is about watching. So, oh, for wow. example, mm. um, you've got poems like in the, in the jackdaw poem, you've got the chack, 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 chack of, <laughs> yeah. of the jackdaw. Um, but then the visual aspect, and this is one of the kind of bits I remembered most mm. um, is the image I have set a dish of oil in the yard to catch you with your own reflection mm. and I just like this idea of like oil in the end, you know, the reflection and the yeah, I just wondered if, if there was one thing that sort of felt more dominant Really interesting know. question because I, I have a very visual imagination mm. um, so I see things in very much in imagery based way and I remember things in an imagery based way mm. um, I think but having said that, sounds really important to me as well. I used to do, a, um, I used to uh, play a lot of music mm. um, as well when I was younger, and music's a really big part of my life, still in, in different ways. Mm. Um, so sound generally is important. I'm also very sensitive to sound uh, as well, so it, it's part of a kind of general hypersensitivity mm. that I have as as part of my Ellis Danlos syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. So I hear a lot of things that other people don't necessarily hear yeah. and I can get very distracted by them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So the thing that people always notice at Stanza is uh, that in all the poetry readings you can always hear seagulls. 
Mm. Um, and for me, that's like part of the sound of stanza is like poetry yes, with seagulls underneath yes, it. Yes. Um, and I used to find it really funny when I first moved to Grasmere that then you'd get birdsong and sheep <laughs> in, in the readings depending on where you were. That um, is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and that's the kind of thing I think probably a lot of people wouldn't at all think about yeah. or notice, but to me yeah. is yeah. on a level where it's almost distracting. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in the soundscapes of daily life yes. and, and how we live and all those things. So yeah. there's actually there's a lot of buzzing and humming and things in my poems because things in rooms, like even in here, I can I can hear there's a faint buzz somewhere. Yeah, there is, yeah. Um, and noises like that. Yeah. Are, are, both quite important in how I experience the world but yeah, I'm, yeah. I suppose I want to bring them into the poetry too but then I am interested in poetry itself as a, as a kind of soundscape as mm. well and, and how that works mm. so I think it's sound and image probably have an equal weight in some way but mm. in a, in a, they're operating in a different way mm, mm. but I can't think of a poem having one without the other mm. it's interesting about soundscapes because I remember when I lived in Bristol again the seagulls were everywhere yeah. and I did write them into everything obsessively. Yeah. Everything I wrote had much, 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 much of the seagulls in it. And, and you know, mouette is the French word for seagull. Oh, I didn't know that. And That's I was, amazing. Yeah, and I was working in a day. That is what they say. Yeah. And and I just remember I was working with a, a French woman and one time she did this imitation of seagulls sort of doing what, what, what? And I just got obsessed with that yeah. like, as a thing. And like, but Because it is like a constant background noise. Yes. And, um, and I suppose I'm interested in, in all those different kinds of background noises. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The noises which are outside your body, the noises that are inside your body. Yeah. Um, and, and all their different ways. You were working with the words of trust and moving from soundscapes to landscapes. I was wondering... <laughs> if you sort of see yourself as directly inspired by the romantic poets or whether it's more a case of inspired by the same landscapes that they're inspired by? Oh, that's a good question as well. I'm, I'm interested in how that works and even though I spent four years unpicking how it works for other people, mm. um, I'm not sure if I, I have a clear answer. Um, what I think is interesting, and I always feel slightly guilty when I say this, is that I wasn't a, a fan of Wordsworth before I started doing my PhD. Mm. I didn't really understand him. I, I tried over the years. Um, and I always say, um, whenever I have undergrads, I always tell them the story of how when I broke my elbow in the first year of university, I managed to go to all of my classes, except for the one which I didn't want to go to anyway, mm. um, which is pretty typical, which is a reading theory and interpretation course. So mm. it was a critical theory course. And I missed the weeks on Tinted Abbey and on Carol Churchill's Top Girls. Um, and I tell them that that's why I spent the rest of my life doing Wordsworth and feminism. Mm. Um, and that's why they should always do their reading. Yes. Because <laughs> The things that they skip are the things that will yes, haunt them yes, and follow them yes, around for the rest yes, of their life. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I wanted to do this a PhD on poetry and place in some way. And then I saw this PhD advertised and I went for it. And it was only when I was researching for the interview that I realised actually how much there was in Wordsworth, which was exactly what I was interested in. Mm. And I never read him that way. I never mm. kind of looked at the philosophy in the poem. So I'm really interested in that. I am interested in that idea of, of how you end up kind of walking in the snake, I suppose, the kind of snail trail of, of other people anyway. Mm. So, you know, that, that thing that snails, when they make their trail, it's like a super highway 
um, that makes it easier for other snails to go down. Well, that's why birds fly in a V as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in how you end up going away because maybe it's the path of least resistance mm. um, or someone's already laid that path for you. And Wordsworth is really, he writes a lot about paths anyway and their, their physical paths in the landscape. Um, but they're also, um, I suppose they have a kind of spiritual or metaphysical element in, in some way as well. Um, and when you're in the Lake District, you're very aware that all the time you're following paths that other people have made for their feet. So there is this way in which all those kind of things converge. Mm. Um, so I was never a big Wordsworth fan. I loved Keats um, when I was younger. And if I think there's one of the romantics that I feel closest to, and with all of his embodiment in the, in the poems in different ways as well. I don't really know how my poems relate to those and those ideas. So I think a lot of the times, and I found this watching other people when contemporary poets react against romanticism, they're actually reacting against a really basic version of what they think romanticism is or what yeah. they think romantic poets were doing, yeah. um, which is not to um, patronise mm. those people, but it's just that they, they haven't really studied it. Mm. Um, they don't know what those people were doing or how revolutionary what they were doing was. Mm. So it's very easy to look at poets of the past and think of them as these kind of formaldehyded, mm. perfect beings who um, are really stuffy but knew what they were doing in some way mm. and were really privileged. and. Um, what's interesting about the Wordsworths in particular is that they, they didn't fit that particular paradigm, that they weren't like, a bit like Keats I suppose as well, mm. um, that they weren't like Byron or Shelley or Coleridge mm. um, as well, who had a lot mm. of money um, and a, a lot of kind of social cushion behind mm. them that allowed them to kind of make their life experiments, mm. um, that the Wordsworths had a very different um, relationship to society and to money yeah. uh, as well. Um, and I think a lot of the time when, when people go, oh, I'm writing against this, this romantic tradition, uh, they don't know enough about the romantic tradition. So I found that a lot yeah. with people who are writing about the Lake District and go, um, you know, I'm writing about something completely different to Wordsworth. And then I'm like, actually, this is these poems are doing exactly what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't think I'm the best person to kind of look at my poems and, and think that. But I know that, I mean, they're, they're, they're deeply influenced by... Um, I wouldn't have moved to the Lake District if it wasn't for the Wordsworths. So <laughs> I can't unravel those things yeah. for a start. Yeah. But also, most of these poems were written either during the course of my PhD or, or after the PhD when I was still thinking about all these things. And all that work I did with my PhD changed the way I think about place, changed the way I think about our relationship with place and, and dwelling and mm. um, how we live in a place and with a place. Mm. And all those thoughts I think I wouldn't have had if I wasn't looking at what the Wordsworths were doing mm. there as well. Mm. And and sort of going back to what you were saying about sort of, you know, the sounds in the body as well, um, I was going to ask you about conditions you have, the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and hemochromatosis, yeah. uh, if I may. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a later part of your collection kind of considers the body as a dwelling that might be kind of going wrong in some ways and I was just wondering if it was difficult to write about something so personal. Yeah it, it is and it isn't. 
in in some ways. So I'm trying to write a prose book <laughs> about this, this at the yeah. moment, and that is really hard yeah. in, in a different kind of way, um, because I think there's a kind of safety net when you're writing a poem about something that both you know um, your audience are primed in a different way to read things in, in a particular kind of way. Maybe you'll listen to things in a particular way. Yeah. And also that there's something about the whole construct of a poem mm. which uh, allows you to maybe, in that famous phrase, tell its land um, yes, in a kind yeah, of way. Yeah. So you're not having to necessarily face up to something straight on. Yeah. Um, so when I was saying this, um, when I was talking about Jane Cooper yesterday, yes, that yes, yeah. um, I completely fell in love with her when I was doing my MA, when I was um, writing about illness. Um, and it was long before my correct diagnosis <laughs> at that point, but I have been going through a, a really bad spell just before that. Um, so I had started to actually write a little bit more about my body and about those experiences, which for a long time I've been sublimating because mm. I've been pretending to be normal, yeah. I, I think yeah. is the best way of putting it. And I've been doing that in my poems as well. So I first started really focusing on poetry rather than prose when I was a teenager, when I was first really ill. And I did write a lot about my bodily experiences then. But they were really bad poems in lots of ways because I didn't read, I, I didn't know any contemporary poetry really. Yeah. Or that which I did know I knew accidentally. Um, but it was a way for me to help think through and try and understand some of the things that were happening to me which were um, quite inexplicable and yeah. no one had many answers for. And I think there's a way... Um, coming back to Keats, that, that kind of negative capability yeah. um, which allows you to deal with, with the unknowns of both your own experience of illness, your the medical understanding of what you might be going through, which is often full of gaps yeah. and holes yeah. Yeah. and doesn't correlate with your own experience. Yeah. Um, but also the absence of a clear way of describing that to somebody else. Yeah. And I think a, a poem can convey things in a way that helps you bring that experience across without necessarily having to describe everything, if mm. that makes sense. Mm. So slightly different sort of question, but so we're at Stanza at the moment. Um, it's very much one of the things I like about Stanza is it very much feels like a community. Mm. People bump into each other all the time. It's like seeing lots of old friends and everyone gets to know each other quite well. Um, and I was wondering how important it is for you as a poet to have a sense of community and whether that's like a physical community or an online community. Very important. And I'm really aware particularly of how important Stanza is for me in that way. So I first came to Stanza in 2004. Uh, now, when I was a little baby poet and been living in London, I, I'd started going to the poetry cafe um, after university um, but then for various personal reasons it had become difficult to go to the poetry cafe or it wasn't the, the kind of fun space it had been mm. and I was feeling a bit despondent about that like I thought I'd found a, a community and then uh, it didn't feel like it belonged to me mm. um, anymore. Then I came here kind of on a whim because my brother lives in St Andrews and, and has done, he came to university here in the 90s. Um, so he's been here for a really, really long time. 
I've been visiting him a bit anyway because I love it up here. It's mm. a St Andrews is a, a special place to me as well. It's one of my favourite places. Um, even though I've never lived here, right? I have a long sense of of connection with it. So I've been going through a bit of a difficult time. So I come up to visit a few times, and I've been up the previous October, and I must have seen somewhere that there was a poetry festival happening in the spring. So I thought I'll I'll come along to it, and I came not knowing anybody. And everybody was so incredibly yeah. welcoming and friendly. I feel a bit tearful thinking about <laughs> it now. Because it, it really did, it changed my relationship with, with poetry again. Mm. And I went to these amazing events, absolutely extraordinary events, which I could also afford because the, the ticket prices are kept at a reasonable level. And yeah. so it's, it's accessible. But also everybody here is accessible yeah. in a very particular way. Um, that because the buyer acts as a hub, you know you can always wander in here and somebody will start talking to you. You know, there's that experience of kind of coming in, not mm. knowing anywhere, and somebody will say, oh, um, you haven't met so-and-so, meet yeah. so-and-so. And, so, and then they'll say, oh, meet so-and-so. Yeah. And then suddenly yeah. you, you know all these people. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, it is really important. And I think, because I think for a lot of the time in poetry, you can feel very alone with mm. what you're doing. Mm. You know, writing is quite a lonely pursuit anyway. Mm. Um, but I think especially if you don't live in a in a place which is a kind of literary hub itself. So um, I felt this especially when I did move to the Lake District. Mm. There's a sense of, of real isolation from the literary centres. Mm. So as far as like London was concerned, I felt like I, I was dead. You know, I, could have, I might as well have been dead. Yeah. Um, I just wasn't there anymore. And there is a, a problem with presentism in in poetry and having to be in front of people's faces for people to know you exist yeah so being able to come to something like stanza where you meet loads of people yeah. in one go mm. and then they remember you mm. it has a huge effect i think yeah i was gonna say i didn't say anything about the online side of that that yeah. as well and yeah, obviously yeah. again it, if you are in an isolated place or an isolated situation wherever you are one of the wonderful things for me about social media and the advent of social media is that you can get that sense of community online. Mm. Um, and although there's a lot of posts on Facebook, I actually find Twitter more yeah, it's useful. A it's a different kind of, kind yeah. of feeling. Like, I, like poets argue on Facebook, um, mm. and writers have amazing connections on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I've picked out a few poems Excellent. that maybe we could finish with. This is this is a poem that I I like the well the images and um, it's the glorious fellowship of migrainers. The Glorious Fellowship of Migraineurs. When we gather, we greet each other by lifting tentatively one hand to one eye. We meet in darkened rooms quietly, share no wine. Nobody speaks, but often our voices join to moan the migraineurs' psalm, low and holy. The hours before fizz brilliantly, scented with burnt toast and oranges, petrol, sparking fireworks, fireflies, stars. Everyone dons a halo, everyone's soul shines out through their pores, whether unnaturally small or wrapped in a skin of water. We sleep the night together, slip off one by one on waking from a dream we pass between us in which the structure of the sky is revealed. We make no dates, but palm to sample, salute and migraine as kiss, our transcendence. <laughs> and then I, I wondered actually if we could finish with When I Lived Alone yeah it's uh, my favourite one When I Lived Alone When I lived alone I was clean 
Good. I drank jasmine tea in the afternoons, working by lamplight in the gloom. At night I read by candlelight, drank rooibos, played piano to the guitar, guitar to the piano. Sometimes I sang to them both, to the room, to myself, alone. Sometimes I went out. If I left for more than a day, I'd stroke the walls and tell the house to be good without me. Occasionally, people came round and made the still contained air busy. Mostly, though, it was only me, me and the house being good together. I slept curled up against the cool stretch of its ribs like a cub. It breathed gently into me. How I loved its scent of damp sandstone and old, warm wood. I loved how it touched on my mind and shifted its light to my mood, how it helped me be good. In the mornings I'd sit in its eye with a pot of good black coffee, reheating it on the hob as it cooled. Thank you. <laughs> I haven't read that for ages. <laughs> it's great. And uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank for you so much. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.